Welcome to Create Photography, a podcast all about the creative side of photography. This is your host, Daniel Sig. Today, I want to talk about light physics, the properties of light, and most importantly, how to use these properties creatively. So let's start with what is light. Light is photons of energy. It has both wave and particle properties. I think I want to focus a little bit more on the wave properties at the moment because those help us, although the particle properties help us too a little bit in understanding all this. Light is being transmitted along the electromagnetic spectrum. And we only see, as humans, only a small portion of this electromagnetic spectrum. The portion of what is visible to us is between the infrared and ultraviolet range of the spectrum. This sounds very, very dry, I know, but I think it's important to understand, as it's relevant to color theory that I want to cover in a separate episode, It relates to related colors, complementary colors, and so forth, and some other things as well, including infrared photography, for example. But to give you maybe a a good example of this, when you look at a rainbow, which is um, an effect of where white light is actually being dispersed, and we'll talk about that as well, but on a rainbow, we actually do see the spectrum of the white light now broken down into the different wavelengths that go from about 400 nanometers or a little below on the violet to about 700 nanometers on the on the reds and going eventually to the infrared so going from the ultraviolet which is basically below 400 nanometers to the infrared which is under um oh sorry over 700 nanometers and i'll put a a little um, schematic in the show notes about this for visual purposes but just imagine seeing a rainbow like that and then you basically go from those violets to the blues to the magenta zions to the greens to the yellows to the oranges and then to the reds and that's kind of our visible spectrum So, properties of light. When we speak of light, we often refer to its properties. One of the properties is quantity, also called intensity or brightness. You will also hear the term luminescence. So, of course, another attribute of light is the color of the light. So, when we have the full visible spectrum that we're seeing outside, Um, We have all the colors in theory, but then light does have a certain color temperature, and this one is measured in Kelvin. There are colorometers that can actually measure that, and some photographers and videographers actually use that to measure the color of a certain scene, especially if you have a lot of mixed lighting, it can get pretty complicated with your white balance. Another important concept in light uh, is incident versus reflective light. Incident light is basically the light that hits the subject. The reflective light is 
the light that reflects off the subject. Why it's important is because we can measure in theory both with incident light meters or reflective light meters. Again, I don't want to get too technical here, but it is an important aspect overall in understanding how light works and how it reflects off subjects. When we talk about the quality of the light, one term that's often used in photography is the so-called hard or soft light. In my opinion, this is a total misnomer because it's not hard or soft light. If anything, it's the shadows that are casting a hard or a soft shadow. And so it's really more the quality of the shadow, but it's just, that's what we call it. It's hard or soft light. So so that hardness or softness of those shadows or of that light really depends on the size of the subject relative to the source of the light source. Great example would be, let's say it's a sunny day, we're photographing a subject and the sun is on the sky. So now the sun relative to that subject is just like a little pinpoint light source. And so if our subject now is in full sun, the shadows that are being casted by the subject and onto the subject are typically going to be pretty hard. So that's an example of so-called hard light in important and portrait photography, often considered not to be super pleasing. But, you know, there is a place for that because sometimes people also try to photograph those hard shadows. You see it a lot in street photography, very directional lighting and so forth. So you can make already creatively use those shadows and this so-called hard light creatively, maybe let the shadows also fall really, really dark and so forth. Now, examples of soft light will be the opposite, but let's just take the same example where we have a subject standing outside. We're taking a picture of the subject, but now we have an overcast day. Now the overcast cloud coverage basically creates a virtual softbox, so to say. So now the light source is really this entire sky. Now, to be fair, even in the sunny situation, it's not the light source is not just the sun. It's, of course, the entire sky and anything that reflects off the environment of the subject. And we can take advantage of that, too. But So I'm a little oversimplifying, but in an overcast day, we clearly have softer light. We usually don't see shadows unless the sun is peeking through. So we get much softer light and so much softer shadows, really. So that's an example of that. That brings me to light rule number one. The closer the subject is to the light source, the softer the light or the shadows. Ideally, a much larger light source very close to the subject will create a softer light. So that example could be also, let's say it's a model, or we're shooting that model with a five foot or three meter diameter softbox. So with a light modifier that then in that case would cast a fairly soft light onto that subject, but only if it's really close 
to the subject, so within a few feet. If we're putting that same light source, let's say it's at night, and we're putting that five-foot octabox, let's say 200 feet away, now all of a sudden we have a small light source relative to the subject, and we're creating hard shadows again, and potentially not very pleasant um, or um, not very soft light. So another attribute of light is it travels in straight lines, so to say. And we can detect often intuitively the direction of the light by the shadows and the highlights that are being casted. So we kind of get a feel of, you know, when we're looking at objects, oh, it looks like the light is coming from that direction or from that direction. So that's clearly another attribute of light. And typically there is directionality in light. So that brings me to light rule number two. Most objects reflect or bounce off light waves. This is really fundamental to understanding light and photography. And therefore, by reflection, objects can also illuminate other objects. So, for example, if we place an object, let's say, again, we're photographing a model and he's standing in front of a white wall, then we can basically now have that wall also reflect off onto that subject and filling in some of the shadows that are were, were going to be created if that wall would be, for example, pure black. We can take advantage of those types of situations. We'll talk about that in our episode 9 with Don Chinati, where he goes into details of those concepts a little bit more practically than I do today. So, Non-translucent or non-transparent objects reflect light. And we'll talk about translucency and transparency as well, because those are important aspects as well. Brighter objects reflect more than darker objects. So, for example, white t-shirt of a subject would reflect much more than, for example, a black t-shirt. And again, you can make some creative use of that if you want to if you're planning for something you want to maybe create some you know natural fill light via the uh, via the clothes that the, your subject is wearing for example this brings me to light rule number three surface quality of an object determines the type of reflection and how highlights are being rendered so all non-translucent or non-transparent objects do reflect light. And even some of those transparent objects can, of course, reflect light too. But so, especially those that are non translucent, so not glass, etc., they can have different types of surfaces. And so, those efficient and shiny surfaces can actually create very specular highlights. For example, think of a bowling ball that's being illuminated by uh, a strobe light or some ceiling light or something. So you see a specular highlight, and depending on how this bowling ball is, if it's very shiny, which they can be, then you see uh, a reflection of that light and that specular highlight. Dull surfaces, on the other hand, create a much more diffuse highlight, or you don't even see, see the highlight as distinct or not at all. Let's say a tree trunk or something like that. 
This brings me to light rule number four. So if we have something very shiny, like a mirror or another flat surface like that, that is reflective, then the angle of incidence equals the angle of reflection. So if you work with reflections in an image, and you can use that very well for compositional reasons, you may have a beautiful reflection of a mountain in a lake or something like that, then your view angle um, really is determining what you're seeing in that reflection. Of course, you can play with that uh, in your own bathroom mirror, for example. So that's a very important rule. And, you know, if you're doing product photography, you may have unwanted reflections in your products if it's a shiny one. And you may have to place certain things like white cards or black cards to kind of work with these reflections and get rid of them and can be very challenging. As mentioned, with highly reflective objects, which we call having efficient surfaces, the angle the light hits an object will be the same angle that is being reflected. And so that's really that light rule number four. Light rule number five, the color of an object is dependent on what colors are absorbed versus what is being reflected. For example, a banana is yellow because it absorbs all the colors in the spectrum except yellow, and it really reflects the yellow wavelengths. So that's why we see it as yellow. So that's another important color aspect. And I have a separate episode on color, and we'll talk about that in more detail with regards to how we can use it as a compos compositional element and how we can be more deliberate about using color. Let's talk about transparent and translucent objects for a moment. So I mentioned that most objects reflect light. Now, a fully transparent object may not reflect or not reflect much. It really depends on the, on the specific situation. But most objects are not transparent like windows, but windows would be a great example of a transparent object. Now, windows are really weird in a sense that they can be fully transparent. They can become fully reflective. They can be partially reflective. They can also become translucent. Windows now can become translucent if they become covered with something, for example, with water droplets from rain, with condensation, um, maybe they become dirty. So in those situations now, our transparent object has become translucent. Now, that's can, this can also be used creatively. Again, I'm referring to Saul Leiter's work. Again, he's done a lot of photographs that where he uses condensed up windows and shoots through them from the inside, shoots typically the outside. And now you see, you create this mystical look because the outside is not rendered clearly we actually get some other effects that i'll talk about as well but we clearly have um, 
uh, a translucency now where we only see part of the outside because there's something in the way of as we're looking through as the light is passing through basically so that brings us to another concept because as light is passing through objects that are transparent or translucent we can have some effects now the light rays are not straight anymore they can actually be redirected so to say or refracted a great example for refraction is if you put a spoon or another object in a half full glass of water you will see how the light is refracted differently as it passes through the air versus the water and the glass so that's a great example of refraction Another concept to know about is the concept of scattering light. Under certain conditions, light waves can be scattered. So that means like they're being bounced in different directions based on the objects the light hits. A great example for that is water droplets being hit by sunlight. And we'll see some of that light scattering. Another thing that's that can be used creatively, actually, but maybe not, not as often is the concept of dispersion. So the, our visible overall white light can be separated into its component colors. Again, I'm going to the spectrum of electromagnetic wavelengths, and we talked about kind of the rainbow. So visible light can be separated into its component colors due to the different degrees of refraction through an object. And what we're seeing then, for example, in a situation where we have tiny water droplets in the air um, and the sun is shining into it, we have the creation of a rainbow. We can also shine light through a prism and then basically see, again, this kind of rainbow of colors through the prism. So that's the uh, effect of dispersion. Now we talked about shadows already. I want to just bring them up one more time. So shadows are really being formed when light is blocked, of course. And we kind of all know that, but um, of course we can also make deliberate use of that and start playing with shadows very, very consciously and not necessarily intuitively in our work. You can chase shadows in your work or for a project. Again, what comes to mind to me is street photography. But of course, we have shadows all the time, even on an overcast day. There are subtle shadows. They're just not as crisp, but there are more or less um, defined areas of where the light is coming from. There's still light directionality, and we will see shadows and highlights as well. So photography and color. We as humans, of course, are able to see colors typically in the correct color. In other words, our brains adjust to different lighting conditions, even though the temperature of the color that we're seeing is different. Now, unfortunately, our cameras are not that smart. So we need to tell our cameras what the correct color is. And that brings us to the term white balance. As you know, for our modern digital cameras, we can set the white balance automatically or we can set it manually. Either way, um, there is a, a process where we're adjusting the white balance and the, the resulting color spectrum to a certain situation. 
So even throughout the day, and as the cloud coverage, for example, changes, we know that the colors and the color spectrum changes. We are all familiar probably with the term blue hour. So that's a time just after sunset or before sunrise where we have a lot, a lot of the blue spectrum in our light. And you can literally see that when you capture it with the camera. Even if we're photographing film and we use daylight bal- so-called daylight-balanced film, our colors may not always be represented correctly because, as I said, it's, you know, in this situation now we have a white balance that's basically set on the film, although our actual lighting situation and the color of that environmental light may have changed. Or we use that film, that daylight-balanced film, and shoot on the inside with tungsten lights, then we get weird or strange color shifts that, you know, we may want to use. For those of us working with RAW formats uh, in our digital photography or when we're, for example, scanning our negatives for our film photography, we can still adjust the white balance very easily in post. And I know that was a lot of theory, but I think it is an important thing to understand as photographers. I'm not a physicist, so if somebody is out there and has better explanations than I do, please let me know. This is just kind of like my understanding and what worked for me and how to understand the important concept of light and color reflections and so forth and what has helped me thus far but now more importantly i want to talk about after all this theory about some easy and creative ways on how we could play with those light physics so let's start with white balance so so one fun thing to try is just to change your white balance maybe your camera is set on auto and you have a digital camera and maybe you're not a purist you're not a documentary photographer just shift your white balance around a little bit and see if you like the resulting effect. Maybe you shift it all a little bit into the green spectrum and you just do a whole series of images on it in that green in those green tones. Now, you will notice that many cinematic movies are being shot in a certain color scheme, often referred to as color grading. And uh, you will see that colors are being basically used very deliberately in those movies at many different levels. And we'll talk about some of that later as well, because I think it's a fascinating topic and, and, and something that's being done in cinematography very consciously. But anyway, so an easy way to do this for us right now with our digital photographs would be to just adjust white balance but even if we shoot film and we're scanning in our film we have a raw format we can play around with the white balance and kind of see see what we get another thing you could do would be to set if you can set it manually on your camera is to set your white balance to a certain value let's say you go to 5000 kelvin and just shoot with that and kind of see what you get so that's just one idea. If you're shifting to cooler tones, so kind of to the blues, of course, you get a very different look than shifting to warmer tones. And you can take the same image, maybe create virtual copies in Lightroom and kind of play with that. So that that's just one idea. 
Another idea to play with light is to play with reflections. This is his own topic. And as I mentioned before, more efficient or shiny objects can create more reflections. For example, if we are photographing buildings with lots of glass and perhaps even chrome, we will be dealing with potentially lots of reflections. We can use this to our advantage and put something of interest in our reflection. Of course, we can work with mirrors, actual mirrors, and use the mirrors and what they are reflecting as our compositional element. We do not have to look for traditional mirrors. As I already mentioned, we can look for glass and chrome and buildings. We can look for reflections in car mirrors or even on cars themselves. We can look for water reflections in puddles and bodies of water. Of course, it helps if those bodies of water or the puddles are particularly still, so perfectly flat, that gives nice reflections. And then again, we'll have to think about angle of incidence is angle of reflection and kind of play with the reflection in our composition. I think those reflections in puddles and other bodies of waters and of course in lakes and so forth can be very cool compositional elements. We can create very nice symmetries if we include the actual object being reflected and the reflection both in the image or we can just include the reflected portion of the image and kind of create an upside down image which could be pretty cool as well. We can of course have the sky reflect in the body of water or just basically anything. So the sky is literally the limit with all the options here as it relates to reflections. Shadows. We can look for shadows and try to make this into a little project. Perhaps we just focused on shadows. If there is a point source of light, like the sun, then we may see very strong shadows. So we have this so-called hard light that we discussed earlier that should be really called hard shadows because that's what it's really creating. But it really creates a hard boundary between the shadows and the light. Shadows offer very interesting additional compositional elements to make images more compelling. Sometimes it is the shadow within a nature structure like a mountain that makes the mountain, in that case, more 3D-like, creates more depth in the image. And I'm not just referring to a single shadow, but just a, a range of highlights and shadows and transitions that really then creates this 3D perception in our two-dimensional image. In street photography, using shadows is very popular to a point where maybe it has been almost overstretched, that particular trend, and I'm guilty of that myself. Light direction, a topic for its own, but very important as well for creative effects. I'd like to refer to the discussion I had with Don Cinatti on the topic of lighting in episode 9. So you can check that out at danielsickphotography.com, episode 009. Translucencies. Translucent objects are objects that let light through, but only partially. 
I think translucent objects are very interesting compositional elements or can be. I'm again referring to the work by Saul Leiter. Many of his photographs seem to be taken from the inside of a fogged up or condensed shop or coffee shop window. The condensation on the window creates a layer that is translucent. So the reflecting light beams from the outside objects are further refracted by the water droplets on the window, creating a painterly effect. It also results in not recognizing the objects, the outside objects, as clearly from the inside or from the camera view angle. It removes some of the sharpness, some of the clarity. It adds mystique to the image as well. We can create similar effects like these by shooting for window curtains, for example, or any other translucent objects. I kind of like that look and type of layering a lot, actually. Scatter. As mentioned, scattering means that light is bounced in different directions. For example, water droplets hit by the sunlight can create such cool scattering effects. Another common example is the sunlight scattered on bodies of water, creating a glistening effect. Sometimes that can be too much. And in order to reduce scatter, we can actually put a polarizer on our camera lenses. What are some of the creative ways of using scatter? For example, we could photograph droplets that are being illuminated by the sun, and we might be able to get a strong scatter effect that way. We can photograph some droplets and also look for a refraction of that image, in particular what's behind the droplet. So we may actually use the droplet in that sense as a lens, and we will see some refracted image of what's in the back. So it's a really cool effect and it's typically upside down, but it also may be distorted in its shape because it is refracted and so we'll have that cool effect that way. Lenses themselves can scatter light in a way that we see as lens flare. Now lens flare can be incredibly annoying and it can also be used for creative effect. With older lenses, we have to be careful to photograph directly into the sun as those lenses are often not as flare resistant. But lens flare is very popular these days in cinematography. If you check out A Star is Born, I really highly recommend it, at least for the cinematography. The cinematographer is Matthew Libatik, or Libatik, and he used the flare effect a lot in this movie. So I would check it out for cinematography and color grading anyway, and it's a fantastic movie in my opinion. Diffraction. We actually haven't talked about diffraction in the physics section, so to say, yet, but I thought I want to bring it up briefly, as it is a phenomenon that is being discussed, and it is often discussed in the context of making images less sharp. Namely, if we have high aperture values, so f16, f22, and so forth, then our images may start to become less sharp, and that's because of the diffraction effect. 
But we can use lens diffraction creatively by creating sun stars of the sun or of street lights or other point source lights by stopping down our lens to higher values like f16 or f22. Actually, this effect depends on what kind of lens you have. And if you Google that, you'll see that there is a whole subculture around sun stars. For example, certain lenses with certain number of aperture blades may create these perfect, you know, 16 sun star sun stars. Those were just some ideas on, you know, how we can use light and some of the optical phenomena of light creatively maybe a little bit more deliberately. And I think, of course, the list of how we can use light creatively is endless because photography is all about light. But it is fun to think about specific techniques where we perhaps focus creatively on certain aspects of light behavior and light physics. All right, so I hope you enjoyed this episode of Create Photography that was maybe a little bit different. We went a little bit into the technical realm, but hopefully brought it back to some of the creative opportunities that this brings to us. All right. Thanks so much for joining me this week on Create Photography. I hope you liked the show today. It was probably a little bit different because I went into some of the physics and some of the technicalities, but I tried to bring it back to some of the creative things that I want to really focus on in this show. Make sure to visit my website, danielsickphotography.com forward slash podcast. There you can subscribe to the show via your preferred podcast player. And you can also subscribe to my newsletter and then you'll receive automatic notices with the extended show notes as well. Often I have, you know, some of the images I will be discussing or some examples. Also, the show notes for today's show will be there and it will be at danielsickphotography.com forward slash physics. Otherwise, you can really help the show if you're leaving a review on iTunes. You can also contact me directly via the website and I'd love to hear from you I'd love to hear episode suggestions other feedback things that I could improve and so forth also if you have ideas for people to be on the show or if you want to be on the show just contact me all right thanks so much again and talk to you next time mm-hmm.